So I'm uh, delighted to have this opportunity to share with you uh, something about my thesis for uh, my master's degree in Buddhist studies, which I did on this text, which is called the Terigata. And then we'll explore some of the poems uh, of this text together in, a, in an oral and interactive and lively way. Um, the Terigata is a collection of 73 poems attributed to the early female disciples of the Buddha, all of which were said to be arahants, so they had contained, attained complete liberation. And uh, if you've heard me speak before, I usually uh, say this as well, that they, this text is actually the first and the oldest text of women's literature in the world anywhere. And it's the only text of any of the major religions that was composed by women. So it's, it's really an extraordinary uh, piece of literature. Um, I'll read you a little bit about my approach um, to the thesis. So the, the title of it is um, Voices of Early Buddhist Nuns a dharmological approach to the Terigata. So dharmological uh, means looking at it through uh, a dharma eye uh, from the perspective of a dharma teacher. So uh, dharmology is our specifically Buddhist approaches to studying the theories and practices of Buddhism. So we bring our practice as Buddhists to our scholarship. Rita Gross, who spoke here a, a few years ago, um, she's written a lot about Buddhist theology, and um, for her, the discipline and the practice of studying and commenting on the Dharma um, is a time-honored practice in Buddhism, and it intends to come up with Dharmic solutions, uh, not only to scholarly problems, but to contemporary issues as well. So, um, in looking at this text from a dharmological perspective, I w explored how the poems might be used in teaching the Dharma today. So the, the text as a whole can function as a dharmological source book, setting the teachings on the ultimate Buddhist goal, because they're all about uh, songs of awakening. So it, they, they describe the nun's um, experience of awakening, sometimes her previous life, life before that, before she was ordained. And, uh, and then sh usually the poems have a kind of uh, an introductory part where there's something concrete that the nun is telling about her own experience. And then it has uh, a part at the end where um, it's kind of like a liberation refrain there, there are more standardized ways uh, of speaking about uh, liberation. And I'll talk about uh, those liberation refrains later. So it's about Nibbana. And as you may know, uh, Nibbana literally means cooling, quenching, extinction of a fire. And it's th the result of the dying out of the threefold fire of lust, hatred, and delusion. 
So raga is the word for lust. And I, I, one of the exercises we'll do today is look at uh, the emphasis on dealing with raga, with this sense desires in, in many of these poems and trying to make some sense of that in our own culture 2,500 years later. Um, the Buddha refers to Nibbana as the unborn, the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefined, undefiled, supreme security from bondage. So Nibbana is the freedom uh, from suffering that is caused by clinging. And it's often associated with the Buddhist idea of emptiness, uh, sunyata. And uh, Gil Fronstahl mentions this. Um, he, he says that the Buddhist, uh, our Buddhist practice can be seen as a process of emptying ourselves of concepts, uh, projections, and, it, and the attachments that we lay over our everyday experience. So letting those drop away and, and living in a kind of wide open emptiness. So the Terigata uh, are obviously um, not the teachings of the, of the Buddha himself, but they're stories um, purporting to show how his teachings were realized by some, of, by some of his early women disciples. And they give us glimpses of these women's paths to and experiences of awakening. So my hypothesis for the thesis um, is that the poems of the Terigata can be used effectively by Dharma teachers today to inspire Buddhist practitioners particularly in regard to the third noble truth, the truth of freedom. The poems give us examples uh, that Nibbana, complete release, is possible in this very lifetime. And they give the modern practitioner a taste of freedom, inviting us into these nuns' world, they're called Terry's, which means elder nun, the Terry's world of wholehearted practice and realization. And there's a great diversity uh, in these testimonials. We have examples of how these early women practitioners conquered their difficulties and overcame their suffering and attained complete freedom. And it can be encouraging to see how uh, these women vanquished uh, their wild minds when they were unable to concentrate, vanquished their debilitating grief, often after losing uh, a child or their entire family, insanity even, poverty, rejection, and the asavas. Uh, the asavas are um, often translated as taints, but uh, they l it literally means effluence or uh, uh, secretions, and literally secretions like of a toxic plant or maybe a, a sore that's infected and there's pus oozing out. So it's kind of icky and uh, um, something to, to, uh, to be, be done with. And in fact, um, when one is enlightened, the next 
uh, step after that is that one has the knowledge of enlightenment. And this knowledge is the knowledge of the destruction of these asavas, these taints. And uh, they are um, three things. They are sense desire, craving for existence, and ignorance. So when one is fully awakened, and there's no way to go back once this happens, it's definitive. Sense desire, the craving for, for sense desire is gone, permanently gone. And the craving for existence is absent. It's destroyed. So this craving for existence is a lot like um, selfing. It's wanting to be somebody. It's wanting to be, you know, to be born again in the next minute and, uh, and exist. And that, too, is destroyed. And then finally, um, ignorance. Because ignorance, is, as you may know, is at the root of all of the other um, unskillful mind states. So uh, one of the things that um, I like to emphasize is that in our own practice, when we um, can have little tastes of freedom like this, and these poems give us a taste of these women's freedom when they have it, that these tastes are both valuable and transformative. So if in your own uh, practice um, you notice that you've let something drop away, you've, you've relinquished something, you've, you're free of something, that's something to really um, notice and celebrate. And, um, because it's, our path is like a path of many small steps. And, um, and little by little, we, we just keep letting go of stuff. And eventually, it's not even us who is letting go of it anymore. Ju- it just keeps dropping away. And the more we notice these tastes of freedom, the more easily um, they can arise again. So it's, it's really worth um, paying attention to that. And also, these, um, as poetry, these texts uh, invite the reader to go beyond discursive thinking and uh, to engage with the teachings here through more direct personal insight. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the literary approach that um, I took in this uh, project. In terms of um, literary criticism, I felt that the most valid type of literary criticism was uh, feminine, feminist criticism. Uh, because these women all lived in a patriarchal and by definition, sexist society. And so it's interesting to see how um, these poems uh, interact with that. Uh, Feminists recognize that women are oppressed by patriarchy and that in cultures where patriarchy reigns, women are objectified, marginalized, 
and seen as less capable than men. And you'll hear some uh, accounts of that when Mara specifically says that to, to one of the nuns. So feminists see that um, biology de determines one's sex, that is whether we're male or female. Um, but our gender, whether we tend to be masculine or feminine, uh, is a trait that's not inborn, but it's socially constructed and learned. So the questions I, I asked uh, from a feminist perspective as I was uh, studying this text was, um, what does the Terigata reveal about the operations of patriarchy at the time? How are women portrayed? Does the text reinforce or undermine the patriarchal ideology? And do the voices of these wise women add a dimension to Buddhist teachings that may be underappreciated? Um, in the, the dharmological approach to this, um, as you know, contemporary scholarship values reading critically and thinking critically. And we find exactly the same thing in Buddhist practice. The Buddhists stressed Dhamma Vichaya, which is the investigation factor of enlightenment. So that means observing one experiences precisely intimately, so that we can see for ourselves things as they really are. So both scholarship and Buddhist practice are based on very careful attention to the specificity and details of what we're studying. And both attempt to put aside preconceived ideas so that we can see clearly. So through using the lens of dharmology, um, training does not consist of stuffing the mind with information, but it's rather sharpening, uh, clearing, and transforming it through the triple practice of sila, samadhi, and panya. So my effort was to approach this text uh, with an open mind, as uncluttered as possible with preconceived ideas, and to follow the invitation that often introduces the Buddhist teachings to come and see. Ehipasika, whether the teachings are true for us. So let's do that today. We'll come and see if, it's, if it rings true for us. Um, next, I'd like to... Uh, present the religious uh, and social um, and literary context. So the dominant religion at the time was Brahmanism, which later evolved into what is now uh, known as Hinduism. And uh, so the first generations of Indian Buddhists lived in a culture that was strongly defined by the religious beliefs, the practices, the values, of Brahmins and renunciants. Uh, renunciants are in Pali called samanas. 
So the Buddha and his disciples, uh, as well as other Samana movements, such as the Jains, challenged the authority and orthodoxy of Vedic scriptures, cosmogony, rituals, and social classes. So in particular, uh, the Buddha took on uh, the Brahman idea of Atman, of the, the great self. Um, and with his teachings on dependent origination, um, showed, he demonstrated that there's nothing that w one can really uh, hang on to as the self. Another thing that the Buddha challenged in terms of um, the Brahmanistic religion, um, w in which consciousness is this grand uh, uh, thing that one aspires to be one with, and uh, the Buddha really, really tried to um, get across the point of not reifying consciousness, not making it into a thing, but experiencing it as a process. And, you know, as one of the five aggregates, we see that c consciousness is, uh, originates um, under conditions, so it's dependently originated. And uh, just like all the other of the, the five aggregates. And a third thing that the Buddha uh, did to challenge the, the Brahmanistic um, uh, religion was um, his answer to ritualism. In Brahmanism there were sacrifices that had to be made, sacrificing animals, and there were rituals that you had to do to be going to the water to be purified. And, um, and what he stressed was uh, that our purification is through our karma. So it's by being um, good that one is purified. And it's not necessarily just by being born into um, one of the high uh, castes of society. Um, one of the poems that I really love in this is one by a, a, a young woman named Punna, and she was a former slave. And in this poem, she's not only a woman, but she's also uh, a slave, you know, somebody from the slave caste who teaches, converts, and enlightens a Brahmin priest and pointing out how silly his ritual bathing is. So, you know, not only a woman, but also a slave teaching a Brahmin would have been completely unthinkable uh, in that tradition. So... Uh, it was quite revolutionary what the Buddha was teaching. And the followers of the Buddha, um, this Samana uh, culture, they adopted a lifestyle that was one of leaving home, depending on alms uh, for their nourishment, and also engaging in religious debates. And we have an example in the Terigata of one woman, before she was a disciple of the Buddha, she was already a Samana and going around from town to town with her stake and challenging everybody, uh, all the men actually, uh, to debates and, and usually doing very well until she, until she met uh, Sariputta and, and, <laughs> and, and uh, then she realized that she was in the presence of somebody who knew a lot more than she did and she converted to Buddhism. Um, I don't know if you know um, 
of Alexander Wynne. He's a, he's a scholar at Oxford, and um, he's written um, about that he he thinks that the uh, the Sutta of the Noble Search, which is in the Majjhima Nikaya number twenty six, is probably the oldest account of the Buddha's awakening. And this account, and it's kind of like uh, Gill's book on the on the Atakavaga. Um, Alex says that uh, we should expect to find in uh, an early, early account of the Buddha's awakening something really simple, a simple uh, direct experience that is conveyed and not uh, a whole list of complex uh, theory. And in fact, many of the songs of awakening in the Tirigata are just this. They do express this simple and direct verbalization of the Terry's actual experience. Uh, the religious context at the time also uh, included contradictory views about women within the Theravada tradition. Um, we see in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta that women, not only nuns but also lay women, were greatly esteemed by the Buddha. Mara was trying to get him to, to die and he said, no, no, I'm not going to uh, pass into Parinibbana until all four assemblies are capable of transmitting the Dharma. The nuns, the monks, the laywomen, and the laymen. So the, they were all important and, and until all those, those four groups of people, of his disciples, were capable of transmitting the Dharma, he was going to hang on and stay alive, even though he was getting quite old and having difficulty physically. But we then have other scriptures in the Pali Canon that are profoundly androcentric, if not outright um, misogynistic. And this is particularly true of the well-known uh, Chulavaga, which recounts the Buddha's great reluctance to establish the order of nuns. And there's also in the Vinaya uh, many more rules for nuns than there are for monks. A and it requires their formal subordination to monks in every uh, aspect of their monastic life. So we've got this... Um, you know, negative view of women on, on one side and very positive on the other. Um, and in the, in the Terigata, however, women are portrayed as fully liberated from all patriarchal constraints. So that's, that's pretty amazing, you know, that, that within, you know, a generation or so, uh, these women were able to uh, completely overcome all the constraints that they had been living with for, for generations. So the social context at the time um, was strongly influenced by the religious context. And um, of course, uh, one's life was largely determined by one's birth. So there were these hereditary uh, status group, varnas, with priests, warriors, pastoralists, and farmers, and then servants. Um, and in addition to the four hereditary groups, there were also the outcasts. So the higher groups were considered 
uh, purer forms of human beings than the lower groups. Um, and in Brahmanism, the, the householder, who's a married man, um, he's economically and sexually active, and he's the foundation of society. So the birth of a son was absolutely essential, and there were also rituals for preventing the birth of a girl. Um, so daughters were seen as unwelcome, uh, and, and they were until they were married and got out of the house. One interesting thing that uh, Richard Gombrich points out is that since the Buddha was born uh, in what is now Nepal in Kapilavatu, that area was actually sufficiently far away from the areas that are mentioned in the Brahmanic texts to make one wonder whether the Vedic civilization could have actually penetrated there at all. So that was where he was born and grew up. And then he walked south to Bihar where he became enlightened and started his teaching career. So it could very well be that um, by the time he uh, began teaching uh, and creating his monastic sangha, he did it with the culture uh, and with the critical eye of someone who hadn't been brought up um, in uh, this Brahmanic culture, taking those, the presuppositions that they had for granted. Uh, in his native community, the Sakya clan, uh, they didn't have these um, hereditary status groups, although they did have servants. So it could be that the Buddha modeled the organization of his Sangha on communities such as the one that he grew up in, without castes and uh, with respect for women. In the, in the Vedic tradition, um, there are three groups of people who were not allowed to even read the sacred texts. The uh, servants, the slaves, and women. So there was no opportunity at all for a woman to advance spiritually. She could only do it via her husband making sacrifices for her. And um, so uh, it's, it's really pretty amazing to see uh, what the Buddha did in this context of uh, allowing women to ordain and and uh, and here we have the evidence that, that they did all become arahants, the, the authors of these uh, these poems. Another thing is that the women at the time um, and, and in the in the centuries after the Buddha, they not only had to fight um, the traditional uh, Brahmanistic attitudes, but perhaps even more so uh, the conceptions of women that developed in the context of the male-dominated ecclesiastical Theravadan hierarchy. So as the, the hierarchy developed, uh, we see that um, it became more and more repressive uh, with regard to women. But despite the fact that they weren't, uh, women weren't terribly well supported by um, the Theravada hierarchy, um, they were acti really active participants in early Buddhism and, uh, and its history.
So uh, unlike the Brahmanic tradition in which the sudras and the outcasts and the women were not supposed to even hear the Vedas, the Buddhist monastic community was open to everyone, everyone of all classes and whether male or female or even in between. Um, so I'm going to skip over. Um, to some of the findings. Um, so the, the title of uh, this text is the Terry Gata. So as I said before, the Terry means a wise elder nun, and Gata is a verse or a stanza of poetry, and it's related to the verb gayati, which means to sing or recite. So these poems were originally um, recited, chanted, sung, or dramatically performed as a way of encapsulating and transmitting the experiences of awakening of uh, the teachings of their authors. And the text is organized into sections according to the number of verses in each poem, from the shortest uh, and simplest one-verse poems to the longest and most complex, at the end, 75 verses. The Terigata is the ninth out of 21 texts in the Kudaka Nikaya, which is the minor collection, uh, and it's the last collection, uh, the last Nikaya in the Sutta Pitika, in the Pali Canon. And the one before that, the eighth uh, text in, the, in this uh, Nikaya, is the Teragata, which is um, the songs of awakening of the male monastics. So, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, in his partial translation uh, of the Teragata, in his introduction, he um, notes that the uh, Teragata is placed after two other texts in in the uh, Kudaka Nikaya, uh, the Vimanavatu and the Petavatu, both of which are regarded as quite late. So his theory is that the Terigata and the Terigata were also compiled at a relatively late date. So one of the things I did was to test his theory and um, on the relative dating uh, of the Terigata. So I did a, a content analysis um, comparing it with four other texts of the Kudaka Nikaya, the Atakavaga, the Vimanavatu, the Petavatu, and the Maha Nidesa. Um, so the Atakavaga, which Gil has translated um, here, is widely accepted as one of the very, very earliest Buddhist texts. And in Gil's translation, he highlights elements that are conspicuously absent in the Atakavaga, so indicative of something really, really early. And these are the systematized numerical lists that we often hear um, when we read the, the suttas. Anything about supernormal powers, such as the divine eye, uh, and supernatural or mythological stories that are removed from our ordinary human existence, and also um, discussions of future lives or rebirth. Uh, 
So related to these uh, four concepts that Gil highlights, I um, mm. selected keywords in Pali that were related to those, and I looked for their relative frequency um, in the Terigata uh, and compared that with their relative frequency in these other texts to see if what Tanisaro Bhikkhu sa is saying is correct, that, that um, the Terigata is probably later than these two other texts. So I calculated the relative frequency of the Pali terms in each of the tests. They're, they're long, you know, they, they're not the same length, so you couldn't just count them up and say there's 10 here and there's 20 there. So you divide it by the, you know, the number of poems or suttas that contain one of these uh, keywords by the number of poems or suttas in the uh, collection as a whole, and then multiply it by 100 so you get a percentage. Um, and I also analyzed the last four poems of the Terigata differently. I, I gave them their own column because these four poems are also widely considered to be much later in time. And so I, I separated them out to see if the frequency of these later terms would be indeed more pronounced in these uh, four last poems. So if you go to your handbook and look on page one, you can see in this uh, table, you've got uh, the keyword in Pali on the left, you've got the English translation on the right, and then you've got um, the number of occurrences in each of these texts. So the AV is the Atakavada, the VV is the Vimanavatu, the PV is the Petavatu, the THI is the Terigata, uh, 169 or the, is the m main bulk of the, of the text, and the THI 70 to 73 is the last four poems. And then the Mahanidesa is the Nid 1, uh, which is uh, also well known to be quite late. So if you look at the bottom line, you can see that, yes, indeed, um, these Pali words, uh, only two of them occurred in the Itakavaga, and the uh, average relative frequency as a whole for both of these words together was close to 1%. And then if you skip over to the, to the main body of the Terigata, it's 3.2%. So it's the second lowest of all these terms that um, are indicative of later texts. Then would come the Peta uh, Vatu and then after that, the Vimanavatu, and then only after that, the last four poems of the Terigata, and at the other end of the scale, uh, the Mahanidesa, which has way more of these words than, than any of the others. So this, this was an interesting um, exercise that would seem to suggest that um, uh, what Tani Sarabhika is saying is uh, probably not correct, but I did one more thing. I also um, explored a very fascinating monograph uh, written in 1967 by A.K. Warder called Polymeter. And it's considered the most comprehensive book on the development of poetic meter in the Pali canon. And Warder was, was, was an amazing scholar. So what he did was a metric analysis that um, he was able to place segments um, of the Terigata in the very earliest period of the texts, 
right at the same time as the Atakavago. And then his work uh, suggests that the Terigata developed over several centuries, with some poems being extremely early, others perhaps 150 years after the death of the Buddha, and still others perhaps 250 years after the time of the Buddha. And interestingly uh, for us, he also looked at the Petavatu and the Vimanavatu in the same metric analysis. And he um, considers that they were written in a period of what he called literary decline, uh, even later, so 300 years after the death of the time of the Buddha. So here we have the results of two completely different methods. Warder doing metric analysis of the poems and myself doing content analysis of key words, both coming to exactly the same result. Uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, the Terigata is an intermediate text, and these two others that happen to occur before it in the order of the text in the collection uh, were considerably later. So this kind of shows you the value of triangulation when you're doing research, that uh, you don't just... Uh, rest with your own results, but you see if you can find something else that corroborates or does not corroborate um, what you found. Um, if we look on the next page, I uh, also took a look at um, the genres of the poems in the Terigata, and I came up with six genres. Um, the th there are 13 poems that were instructions to or praise for the Terry. So most of them were, uh, the Buddha says, uh, says the poem to the Terry in, in question, and upon which she becomes enlightened. So you know, the Buddha was really good at knowing exactly what people needed to hear to attain enlightenment, and that's what he gave to them when they were ripe for it. And they did immediately uh, wake up, and then the poem became their own and they uh, repeated it to themselves as though they were speaking um, uh, from their point of view, uh, sort of the self point of view. Um, one of the scholars, uh, I, think, I think it's Collins, who notes that often in, in uh, translating these uh, poems, it's not, it's not always easy to tell who's saying what because um, the poems weren't, uh, they don't always have like so-and-so said such and such and so-and-so said such and such. But since they were recited orally and performed, it would be very easy for the listeners to figure out who was saying the different parts because the reciter would change their tone of voice or their posture or their dramatic effects to you know, represent the character who was speaking. Um, but also, uh, Collins notices that in, in the Pali itself, it's not clear whether the poems were spoken to uh, a particular person or by a particular person. So there's a little bit of uh, flu there. Um, so the next uh, genre is soliloquies, and that's the, the lion's share of the uh, terigata. So uh, that would be a dramatic speech to oneself uh, to give voice to one's own reflections. 
And then there were uh, quite a few dialogues. Many of them were dialogues with Mara, who is the personification of evil or of uh, trying to knock us off the path of awakening. And others were, were uh, dialogues with family members or friends. Um, and then uh, a fourth category is something I called uh, paired soliloquies. So these um, are poems in which the Buddhist instructions um, are realized and the teacher speaks first and then the Terry proclaims uh, their experience. So it's, it's not exactly a dialogue, it's more like two successive uh, soliloquies. And then there's one poem that's written like a piece of theater with uh, eight different characters plus a narrator. And uh, so this was obviously meant to be performed. And then we get to the last four that we've talked about as being late. And these are long narratives with many elements of the supernatural. And all of these uh, characteristics that Gill describes uh, don't occur in this very, very early text. Uh, it's interesting in the last four poems that each of the Terries comes from a very privileged family, so we don't see this, this diversity that's so nice in the rest of the, of the collection. And they attain arahantship very quickly uh, after they ordain, and sometimes even when they're still in training. So it's just kind of like piece of cake, you know. And it's piece of cake because they had such good previous existences. It's not, it's not good because they, you know, were training so assiduously. So it's know, it really is a reflection of a, of a kind of a, a literary decline. So um, with respect to the rest of the Terigata, these last four poems I would call doctrinal outliers um, in one way. One is the emphasis on miracles and the supernatural, and one is the determining role uh, in the path to enlightenment of previous lives rather than uh, making the effort yourself and, uh, you know, behaving ethically, being generous, calming the mind, um, and gaining insight. And we see throughout the Pali Canon that the idea of the karmic trajectory um, becomes uh, much more prevalent uh, in the later canon and in the commentaries. So these later poems have a very different literary function. They're composed as real uh, elaborate stories whereas most of the other poems in the Terigata were composed as uh, reflections on their lives and their experiences of awakening. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about orality that there's no certain evidence of writing in India before the reign of Emperor Ashoka in the third century BCE. And the scholarly consensus is that the early Buddhi earliest Buddhist texts were oral and that they were likely to have been written down about the first century BCE. Uh, Gombrich points out that um, just because they were oral for three centuries doesn't mean that they were not accurately transmitted because in the Vedic tradition, which already existed uh, there for many centuries, they had a huge uh, system of transmitting the Veda orally, 
Uh, and it's been proven that they were able to transmit long and very complex texts for many centuries with very, very little variation. Um, hmm? That's known. And, and Gombrich also says that um, in terms of Buddhist texts, that the, when they had the, um, the various meetings uh, of the councils where they would recite the texts, uh, they would then divide up and they'd have somebody would learn a certain text from start to finish. Somebody else would learn it from backwards from finish to start. Somebody else would learn it um, forwards but skipping every other word. And somebody else would learn it forwards skipping every, uh, going every third word. And then they would all get together and compare their versions. So it was kind of scientific uh, the way they did that. And it, it was, you know, it put in place a system that, that made for a more accurate uh, transmission and avoided the problems of the, of the telephone game. Um, but one thing is that even though we have this immense, these immense written texts in the Pali Canon, our tradition um, simultaneously really draws on the oral, uh, the oral and the aural uh, aspects of Pali literature. First of all, as a means of preservation, but also as a facet of lived experience. It's what we might call the sensual dimension of Buddhist scriptures. And uh, there's an interesting book called Orality and Literacy by Walter Ong, and he argues that the fact of writing restructures our consciousness. And when we transition from orality to literacy, we transform human thought from a world of sound to a world of sight. Uh, and he also stre stresses that the spoken word exists in a context of give and take between real persons. Uh, and we see that throughout the Sutta Pitaka. It often begins with uh, a person visiting the Buddha and asking a question, and the Buddha answers. So it is, it is this give and take, and at the end, often the person says how they respond to, to what the Buddha's teachings are. Um, and uh, today, you know, a Dharma teacher is not going to uh, suggest that you read the Pali Canon. A Dharma teacher is going to come and sit down and give a talk and give you a chance to ask questions. And so this, the give and take the in, in the oral context is really important for how we assimilate the teachings. It's very different that we, if we're alone at our desk reading. Um, so other scholars uh, think that um, these texts, the Terigata and the Teragata, may have um, been compiled to support dramatic stage pieces as a way of making Buddhism more attractive to the masses. Um, and we, we know that in communicating to others, there's lots of nonverbal cues like our gaze, our posture, our proximity, our facial expressions, tone of voice that are at least as important as the words, if not more so. So orality provides a lived experience that's particularly, particularly conducive to assimilating uh, Buddhist teachings. 